Late night lizard lounge Miles of music in the round Hold your ground in harmony Sing your songs and set them free Bye-bye, off they go Listen to the rhythms run Where do songs go once they're sung? Open skies of melody Memory endlessly Everybody sings the blues Once the bloom of youth is through Bye-bye, off they go Listen to the rhythms run Where gold blooms once winter comes Hi, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation, the official podcast partner of the 2017 Boston Music Awards. 2017 sees the Boston Music Awards celebrate their 30th anniversary on December 7th at House of Blues in Boston. Tickets are open to the public and on sale now via the Boston Music Awards website at bostonmusicawards.com. They are celebrating over 180 nominees this year across multiple categories. You can check out the full list at that same website. The night will feature multiple live performances from nominated artists and winners will also be announced that night, so if you want to see who wins firsthand, make sure you grab tickets. Grammy-nominated folk and Americana singer-songwriter Alistair Mook. Alistair became inspired by music at a young age when he saw Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie in concert and has passed on that inspiration in his music and his educational programs in local schools. He is a solo artist that speaks a language we can all relate to, whether age 5 or 95, and he's a quintessential collaborator with fellow singer-songwriters in the studio and on the stage. We sat with Alistair to talk about his career transformation from adult folk to family music, what parenting did for his music, and what it's like to write songs with your five-year-old daughter at her hospital bedside. Enjoy our conversation with Alistair Mook, recorded at Woods Hill Table in Concord, Massachusetts. Hello, Alistair. Hello. Thanks for coming out here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Just the other night... We all got to meet in person, which was pretty cool, right at the Lizard. Yeah, you guys came out to the Lizard Lounge. That's a fun show, right? Do you guys like that? I had a ball. I thought it was excellent. So that wasn't my show. It was um, right. Rose Polanzani puts these things on totally sporadic intervals. Sub Rosa. So Sub Rosa. Yes. She's really, I mean, talk about being a nexus. Like She should do um, a podcast. Yeah, I like that Q&A she did with that. I love, so there's this, yeah, yeah, yeah. She does this thing called The Stranger. That's my favorite part of it. I, I mean, the goal is to get somebody who Rose doesn't know at all, uh, or who's new in town or passing ah, through. Stranger Sometimes to Rose. They, yeah, but Rose asks the best questions, and it's a very wonderfully awkward She's very funny. She is funny. I like. I mean, she's very comfortable up there. So she asked this this young guy on. He looked like he'd be playing metal. What was his name again? His name is Grant Bloom. Grant mm. Bloom. Yeah. yeah, I've never met him before. And, and he walks up. Great and talent. I remember thinking, oh, so he, he looked. You know, he could look, kind of looked like kind of nervous. And I was like, oh, he's got an electric guitar. And I'm rooting for him. You know, I hope he does really well. Yeah. And then he does like a little riff, and I was like, hmm, that's pretty right. good. And then he proceeds to blow everybody away. Like our jaws hit the ground, like how good this guy was. Yeah, like is he's really a jazz 
yeah. jazz guy. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what feel. is exciting about it is that it's on Welcome. the spot, it's live, and you're right. It's a you could tell in her personality she can she brings the band together, and she also she can make someone feel comfortable. We've only been at one of these, but you could see it recorded almost. This could I could see this as like almost an We've NPR show or something, you know. Recording these nights. So what she does, it, it's funny because I have a very, I have a similar show and I've been doing it for almost 20 years now, but mine is much more focused on roots music called Pastures of Plenty. And I ask people to play something that has something to do with the roots of American music. It could be original or, or traditional. Roses Nights are much more, they're more about original music. There's a lot of overlap, but it's definitely a, a specific crowd. And there was a little theme that you had, isn't it like? She uh, a theme. Was it one one nation? Yeah, something? this one was oh, uh, uh, united. Something about unity. Yeah. Tell well, us about your program or the uh, well. So I that you've been doing. I I started doing them at Club Passim in two thousand, and I get songwriters together and, and musicians, and we get on stage, and and it's it's a similar format, but Club Passim is a very different room from Lizard Lounge, so. It's a little more concerty. It's a, you know, sure. Pat seems a, a quiet listening room and Lizard Lounge is more bar. So they definitely have very different vibes. But I love that. I love the community bringing musicians together. The musicians really have fun doing it because so many of us who do this, we don't get to hang out that often. Yeah. And that's, that yeah. was the beautiful thing about it is like all these fantastic, I mean, I don't know, how many people are there? Like 15, 12, 20 musicians? Yeah. So yeah. good. And they all are original songwriters. Yeah. And they're all awesome at what they do. They're yeah, all super great talented. songwriters, super talented. Jennifer and Kimball was on our, our program right. here. Kind of reminds me about the music community in Boston. Yeah, it's Everyone really kind rich. of coming together. It's such a great idea. Yours and, and her. I love, I love right. the idea. Right. And, 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 and it's, a, it, you know, it's always just like cross sections because you can cut and slice and different directions there's there's so much stuff here you know rose and i are a similar age and most of that group is kind of around our age but yeah i mean this that's sort of one generation's worth of musicians but the the town is just choked with super talented young people that are coming through it's hard to keep up yeah i love seeing the sort of the metamorphosis and then the full circle you being a folky americana whatever you want to call it musician and then and writer and touring finding that niche of family right. when you had a family and that was what 2010 yeah my girls were born in 2008 I yeah put my first family album out no they were born in 2006 six they're 10 okay boy I know. I, I I'm constantly have to really think about when my daughters were born. That's terrible. I, I know. I, and so then you came back to non-family album recently, too. Yeah. I just put out my first self-titled adult one, right? album in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, which was produced by Mark Arelli, who was also there that night. Right. We met Mark. <clears throat> I'm glad you guys came. Does, were you there? I, I sang a song that I, you know, everyone does kind of two songs. The yeah. first song I sang, I wrote it after the last Sub Rosa, and it's very much like about that night. The the stranger, the guest that night was Lori Sargent, who's you guys should have on. She's been around Boston music scene for years. And she and Rose had a conversation. Lori was very honest and was putting stuff out there about having a career where you sort of reach certain heights and you're deep in it and there's a lot of expectations and dreams and stuff. And for most people, I mean almost everybody, that moment passes, right? Not, not a lot of people get rich playing music. But for me, anyway, things get more interesting after that moment. I mean, there's like wisdom and maturity experience that comes. What moment? 
when everything's hitting, you're young and ambitious and possibilities are limitless. And it's been inspiring to me as a songwriter to see a number of people in that particular group and scene continue to write after they have kids, after they've sort of gotten to an age where, you know, they're not going to become household names. They're not going to blow up that way. And yet they were driven to continue to write and make music and make art. I mean, everyone I know hits that point of going, now I'm 30, whatever, and maybe I have kids. And now what do I do? Like, you know, you can do music when you're in your 20s. At some point it gets harder if you're going to make a career of it. Being able to like bust through that wall and get to the other side where you're able to keep doing it on whatever terms you've made work for yourself, that's when it gets really interesting. But wasn't there that moment where you were thinking, well, maybe it's time to start doing yeah. something else, and then you decided to do one less, I guess you called it a swan song. Right, which was a kid's album. And then, and then Karma I'll, I'll try happens. a kid's <laughs> I mean, Karma happened, it let me keep going for a few years I didn't I yeah. didn't hit the big time no but it but, certainly opened up a whole new door for you yeah right? well the kids music seemed to bring for me it brought a lot of stuff I had always worked with kids whatever combination of my approach and the way I interact with kids and families it gets called kids music I kind of always put my I go it's family music yeah it's a hard argument. This isn't pediatrics, it's family. That's that's the medical twist I put onto it because I think huh. that this is family music. Yeah. Because it is you go music. into the regatta bar and I heard Elizabeth Mitchell a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and was blown away about this wasn't just sort of, you know, kids jumping up and down to silly music, you right. know. The essence of family music was there, right. where you get grandparents our age and six-year-olds jam into the music. To me, that's why I think it's in, that it should be called family music. For me, it was really important when I started doing this family music that it was family music. I wanted to play to parents in the room. And for whatever reason, that seemed to click. And the four albums I made for kids, things happened that never really quite happened with the adult music. You know, things seemed to move forward. You mentioned that you had worked with kids before. I had tutored kids a little bit. Later on, I did guitar lessons for kids. But the main thing I did for years was work in after-school programs. I'm interested, because you dealt with a lot of after-school programs, you have the language of song and and all those other different programs that that, you do. Yeah, that stuff came later. And that's another, that's like a third thing. And that's become a big part now of what I do. And, And so the way I've figured out how to make a career is, such as it is and music is to do as many different things with the skill set I have as yeah. possible so I, I'm doing the singer-songwriter thing for adults and I'm doing family shows and those things happen on mostly weekend nights and weekend days right which right. leaves the whole week open yeah. you know I had the idea to start trying to do this and I, I had a program I thought like what can I teach about what do I know anything about and I knew a lot I, you know I knew of quite a bit about Woody Guthrie in his life and I thought well I could do a program about him and kind of work in the Great Depression and mm. stuff and I put that together and it sort of started offering it to schools and didn't get a lot of work because Woody Guthrie's not in the curriculum and yeah. the Great Depression is barely in the curriculum yeah. in elementary school and so it took me a number of years to figure out how to expand that program. You're also up against Common Core and like what they have to teach. Right. It's a very interesting concept, but it's probably a tough sell well, too. Well, I this is not like me because I'm very lazy. I you seem it. <laughs> well, I get backed yeah. into stuff. Like not I accomplished forced, at all. I get to yeah. force myself to do stuff. But I kept working at it, and I finally found like my angle, which is what you need. You need to be able to do things, do it your way, and. Yeah. 
I read a lot of books and I researched and I kind of found connections. And the story that I was able to sort of pull together was a story about how the labor rights movement in Woody Guthrie is connected to civil rights, especially mm. through Pete Seeger and this place called the Highlander Folk School, which was a big a place that started as a labor rights training venue and switched over to civil rights as its focus after World War II. There's this song, this story about the song We Shall Overcome about how Pete Seeger kind of shepherded it from the labor rights movement into civil rights huh. through the Highlander School. And through that, I found like, okay, here's a like strand of a narrative that I could tell through music and words that I can start in a place that feels authentic to me. For whatever reason, I've always had this real strong affinity with Woody Guthrie and, and I've learned a lot and I know a lot of that music really well. And so I thought if I start there, then I can kind of move towards civil rights and I can bring that angle. And it got better and better over the years. And as I figured it out, it started to become more popular. And and, and then I, I added, you know, a, a couple other programs and a residency program, a songwriting residency program that I do with kids where we write a school song. And there's kind of a whole language arts curriculum. Step by step, I figured it out along the way how to do it. And for me, it's become the thing that's allowing me to continue to make music. So when people ask me, what do you do when I <laughs> say I'm a musician? I think every musician I know has this. Is like It's the beginning of a much longer conversation. Well, you know, it's interesting because you're kind of an educator as well, in a sense. And But it's not the artistic side of you as a musician. But it blurs. And it blur. there's a lot of people that are, I think, that are in the education field that are very creative that could speak the same language you're speaking. But you're coming to it from a musician. And you're so multifaceted, so it must be hard to explain. <laughs> And it's confusing to people, yeah. including me. I mean, we all like to, you're the guy who does that, right? Or this. So coming back around to this new album that I made, it's hard. I mean, I, it is hard to break down after the last 10 years spent doing kids stuff in different capacities to try to get back out there. And, but I just, I got to a point where I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do what feels like right. And we'll see where it leads. Yeah. So Arlo Guthrie. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up listening to a lot of his stuff, too. Me, too. I was like, who does Alistair sound like? You, there's some moments where you have that riding down the city of New Orleans <laughs> and, uh, and Alice's restaurant. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that Woody is the mentor for well, Arlo. I got and, to Woody through Arlo. Yeah. I mean, I've told this. I don't know if you've been compared story. to Arlo Guthrie. But. Well, it's funny. I mean, you're, t- you're totally spot on. I don't get compared much because our voices are pretty different. I mean, he's got a very clear high tenor. and Well, it's almost as if you're in the same singing family, Well, he was family, the guy though. for me. Yeah. He, yeah. Him, my dad took me when I was a kid to go see Arlo and Pete Seeger in concert. And then we ended up going a bunch. I had never seen anything like that before. I had, you know, gone to some rock concerts and I'd seen different things. And we had a lot of folk music in the house. Those two guys in concert completely blew me away as a kid. It was more than music. It was the way they connected with the audience, that there was very little barrier between what was on stage and what was off stage, that we were all kind of in this thing together. Arlo's almost like a preacher, it, that's how it hit me. The words and in between the music, he's funny and like the storytelling and stuff. I was immediately sucked in. And it's funny you mention it because I haven't, I opened for Arlo here years ago, but I haven't seen him in concert since then. Or that must or have been him. quite a but feeling. Today, I, one of my two girls sings with me a lot. And yeah. she knows this story about how my dad took me to see Arlo and Pete. And so she started, she comes and sings with me on stage. And she started asking, can we go see Arlo and Pete? And I said, well, Pete died. 
but she got fixated. She really wanted to see Arlo. And just today, he's playing at this theater that I that I do kid shows at. So just today, I got tickets for her, Local? for me and her to go see him. Uh, he's playing at the Cabot Theater in Beverly. Sure, that so place we're, is we're fantastic. Go it's a great theater, right? That's a great place. Yeah. So she's really excited. That which is, is so, so exciting. Sweet that she's she's ten and she's. We've already got like the whole preteen stuff happening at home, but she's still like. She's still. I'm very moved that she's. That's pretty good. I don't think my daughter could would even know who that person is, and I blame myself. It's all my well, fault. Well, you we know, they give our children the propaganda we choose to. Right? Oh yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She's a big Steely Dan fan, though. There you go. Uh, so she has that going for her, which is nice. When you were describing Arlo, it almost seemed like you were describing yourself with the humor that he has. There's definitely humor in, in so much of your lyrics, and it makes for a perfect family album, having humor in there, right? Because mm. actually, that can bring the the adult into liking that music as well. It's about some serious subjects that you add some, some humor to. Some of the best Disney animated movies are so successful because of that same exact reason. All the great kids stuff is. I mean, you know, humor The Lion King, the, you know, all these things have beautiful music, but if, if you can resonate with the different generations. Yeah, and humor can work on multiple levels. And so, I mean, there's lots of models for that. Sesame Street was great at that. It was funny. There were stuff that went over the kids' heads that parent that was aimed at the parents. And yeah. I, I mean, I totally gravitated towards that memory. There, that album, Free to Be You and Me. I grew up with that. I grew up it's on in my too. DNA. And yeah. it was so funny. The stuff with Mel Brooks was hilarious. Martin Sexton, by the way, said the same exact stuff that you were saying about being a preacher and sort of feeling that over time. It's interesting because I feel like there's so many people, including a lot of people that night that were there at the Lizard Lines that night, who I'm deeply respectful. There's, there's people who I think have an organ that I don't have. They breathe music in and out at some like really cellular level. But the thing that drew me in was seeing those performances and the way performers can, those performers, it, it was Arlo, but then I started finding these other people. Like David Bromberg was somebody I loved. He was really funny, the way he connected with audiences. Then John Prine, I discovered John Prine, and I was like, okay. I'm a huge comedy fan, but I think comedy at its best does this too. It can, it can combine emotions in really powerful ways. When I get bored, there I'll be. Out in the world, flying free, walking around with my head held high. When I get bald, I won't be shy. Fred. Well, 
Let's talk about uh, getting bald. About getting bald. Yeah, that was a pretty powerful album and video. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you started making music through your kids. Must have changed things. Having kids, I would imagine. Having kids changed. Your... I'm struggling here. I don't know what it is. My kids were born in 2008. Why? Why am I forgetting <laughs> the year that they were born? This is so bad. I, you know, don't I let can, Chuck steal you wrong. He said 06 before. I, can, I don't blame me. <laughs> is it Chuck's fault? I I can remember my kid's age, but for whatever reason, I just I can't do the, the addition and figure yeah, out. We when can they, edit out the stuff born. for your wife. What, what when <laughs> when is your kid's birthday? December twenty eighth. It's the same birthday, 2006. right? Two thousand six. How old are they? I'm, they're ten, Ron. They're ten. <laughs> They're almost so, eleven. They're almost eleven. Okay, so they're, they're ten. I don't know. My sometimes your brain goes on vacation. Mine's still at the ninety-nine. Yes. So in two thousand twelve, it, it was actually in two thousand eleven. The summer, one of my girls was was diagnosed with leukemia. Yeah. And uh, so ALL, right? Twin girls, ALL. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing about ALL is that it really can be cured. But as a parent, I can't imagine going through it. it well, neither could I. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's something you can't imagine, right? It, yeah. So becoming a, a cancer family was, it's just something you can't imagine happening to yourself. And then, and, and then there you are. It's like a club that you didn't, you didn't plan on joining. That's right. And all of a sudden you're in it. Yeah. It's a club with good people. So then we were in it and it changed everything, obviously. And so we spent two years in that weird rabbit hole with treatment. And it was the very first month that she was in the hospital, I brought my guitar in. And we started singing songs. We started writing songs. And I wrote that bald song. And it was powerful. I didn't feel like doing it. I did it because she was bored in the hospital. And there was no music therapist where we started. And I thought, we'll sing some music. And she loves music. She's always loved music. We started singing songs. And then we sang all the songs we knew. And I said, you want to write a song? And she, she was excited. She said, yeah. And I said, what do you want to write about? She said, a monkey. You know, I wrote most of it. But she... It was her subject, and it was called I'm a Little Monkey. And then I wrote that bald song, and then I realized, okay, now we're starting to write stuff. This is therapeutic. Now we're, like, that bald song was me trying to prepare her and my other daughter and us for what was coming. And before we got there to try to make it, she's five. She's not a teenager. She's five. It's going to be hard. But this could be funny. We can make it funny. To ourselves. And then I started to think, I don't think there's anything like this. I think I could make an album. The other thing that was happening was that we were getting an influx of, as you would expect, friends, family. People wanted to start a fund for us and do all this stuff. And we felt weird about that because, A, we're lucky enough to have a safety net in our family. So we weren't desperate. We were in the hospital with people who truly were desperate, single parents, the kind of jobs that you can't just leave for a year and go back to. We're lucky enough to live in this state. This was before Obamacare, but Massachusetts already had it, which meant that we had insurance for our kid because of her condition. She got on mass health and she had a shot at one point that she had to take twice a week for a year, which the nurses told us 
they charge $40,000 per shot for. I mean, that's the kind of thing that breaks you if you're doing even a copay, right? If you're yeah, doing anything. And so we, we didn't feel like we had reached a point where we were in desperate economic straits. But there's all this altruism. People want to help. So I started to think, you know what? If you want to donate money, here's what you could do. You can donate money and help me make this album. And I'll make an album. And then we're going to send this album out to kids uh, in hospitals. And that's what happened. And we yeah. ended up making that video and got a bunch of people. We, we sang, you got a friend of me, Chris Smithers, sang it with me as a duet. And we got a bunch of people involved. And we and then the album kind of went crazy for a while. And that was really surreal. And it ended up leading to this Grammy nomination and stuff. And so in the, we're in the middle of this already crazy journey. This other crazy thing is happening. And there was a lot of us having to figure out how much are we willing to put ourselves and our daughter on stage. We started to hear back from parents that were saying that this was helpful to them. And so it felt like a useful sacrifice, you know. But we got through it. And the bottom line is we have two healthy kids and we're on the other side of this. But it, it was very instructive to me as a musician, too, as a songwriter, that for kids' music, there really is nothing you can't write about. You just need to have an honest angle. You need to find a way in. When I went to my friend Ananayak, who produced this thing, and said, listen, I have these songs. I want to make this album for kids with cancer. And, you know, he knew what we were in the middle of. You know, what's he going to say? He was like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Later on, he told me, like, he was like, I was prepared for the worst. He was like, I... I was just thinking, what are what are these songs going to be like? Is this going to be horrible? You can't mm. write songs about can't for kids. And I, the guidelines for me were all those things we talked about before, Sesame Street and Free to Be You and Me and these things that you can find humor in important stuff. As long as it's coming from an authentic place, we can get there. And, uh, but that's exactly right. That's I think that's the trick of really good family music is not to talk down, not to dumb it down just because they're kids they're it's intelligent lyrics um the bald song it's it's funny the video is great when you guys all shave your heads but you also you talk about gender you talk about more current things that are in on the the, the next album i put out was kind of a tribute to free to be you and me it was kind of an update and it was a lot about gender and different kinds of families and stuff right yeah i mean you, yeah. i think one of them you're talking about the boy who wants to sit and have tea and, and right, wear right. a dress and and then the girl wants to skin her his skin yeah yeah the free i think it's a perfect way to do it because i remember that free to be you and me that's what they would those are the kind of more serious you kind of things they were an talking angle. about you need an angle you need to have this yeah, the starting point is you can't talk down to kids obviously and i and to me you need to include parents and that that means finding a way to either through humor or music to pull in people who aren't kids. I think the angle that I found with the cancer album was that I learned something that most people don't know. Living with a serious disease doesn't mean you stop living. There's a lot of laughter and fun on the pediatric cancer ward, which I think people can't imagine, but families in it know it and learn it quickly. Like kids are amazing patients because when they feel like crap, they feel like crap. And then when they're feeling better, they laugh and play and they don't ask a lot of why me. And so kids play in those playrooms. And when I saw that and I sort of saw that in the other kids, I thought that, you know, there is actually joy here and we could we can write about that. It doesn't have to be sadness. You know, Alistair, there's so many, so many layers here that they're so true with the way that you brought to the table before 2012 what you were able to do in songwriting you know it's the cliche things happen for a reason but you know god forbid cancer should strike any adult or kid but the resilience and the positive that comes out of a potentially very negative thing 
is palpable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, and it comes out in the music. You know, I just want to read one thing, as if I may. This is your album in the first song. Speaking of C is for Cookie, I just read C is for Cancer. <laughs> and I like the way you just say the Cancer album, because there's a lot of people that won't even say that word mm-hmm. in the club and outside the club because they're scared. Mm-hmm. They're scared to use that word. But C is for Cancer, that's growing in me. A is for Abel, that's what I will be. Able to bend like a tree in the wind. My branches are strong even though they are thin. N is for nothing can make me afraid, for I am the kid who leads the parade. I march down the street and I wave as I go, and people wave back and they smile. Even though my hair may be gone, they can see me for me, for I am the light and the... Sorry, it says Seymour. <laughs> I am the light. <laughs> Buffering. I am the light. And the light is in me. Thank you. Then see once more, this time is for comfort. The people who love me will give me when I hurt, which I will now and then, and I know they will too. But we'll huddle together and the storm will pass through. And then E will emerge and we'll smile and dry ourselves in the sun that's now bright in the sky. And R, I will rest and I get ready again for the struggle that's waiting around the next bend. And it goes on. But that's how the album starts. And then you get into the bald tune, which is just funny and Right, and, and those great, two are really the only two cancer-specific things right. on the album. There's stuff about struggle, but those are the only two actually cancer-specific things. And people have used this for kids dealing with other stuff, too. What's the feedback you've gotten from families and care providers? And We've gotten a lot of nice emails over the years, but the coolest thing I got was a video that a mom sent of of her daughter whose name is Itzel on the way to the hospital and she's got the tube going into her nose she's in treatment like my kid was and she's singing these songs in the back seat one of the songs we put on was another local songwriter Sean Staples a good friend of mine wrote this song Joy Comes Back I want to be ready I want to be ready I want to be ready when joy comes back to me it's so hard to write really simple really good songs and Sean is really good at it we put that song on, and this girl in the backseat is rocking that song. You know, it's a gospel song, and we sang it in our, you know, white gospel way, but she <laughs> she is owning it and making faces, just feeling the music, you know? And that was the best feedback we got. You know, those are the moments where we go, this is worth doing. To be able to share that with people in the world and make a connection like that is pretty amazing. I mean, it, it, that keeps you going for years i think i mean it's more powerful than a grammy nomination or any kind of money you may make i can't imagine seeing a song that you write and seeing it affect a little girl like that and her going off on it that's amazing you know little moments of just speaking more broadly it only takes a couple of moments of real like passionate feedback this helped or this got me through some I mean, it really can keep you going. I had a couple of things early on that was fuel to just keep me feeling like there's got to be some reason why I'm doing this. I, the emotions must have been pretty wild. You alluded it to it before with this Grammy nominee on the heels of this really trying year or two of like you said, the rabbit hole. And what came out of the rabbit hole was a lot of amazing things like what Chuck was talking about with that little girl would have never had that video sent and jamming out. But the Grammy alone, what was that like? Oh, surreal. You got a call or something? How's that work? Yeah, they make an announcement. These are all the Grammy nominations for the year. Because they called, when I got mine, they called me. (laughs) They called you because they didn't even have an email then. Right, exactly. (laughs) 
It was very exciting, and I'll be honest, it was career-changing. It's I always get to be Grammy nominee Alistair Mook, and it, I'm not above holding on to that. Yeah. What were you nominated for? Best Children's Album. What was the name of the album again? It's called Singing Our Way Through. Singing Our Way Through. It inspired some of your teaching? It didn't inspire my teaching. It, it gave me a credential, which there's no other prize that comes close to it in music, right? It's, it's the only one that everyone's heard of. It helps. I mean... I mean, there was a story behind this album, and the story is unusual enough that it it got there. But it's the package, though, which is what I think is key, is this is great music. You can't get away from the fact that the music just resonates. Those prizes and those awards and stuff were a struggle for me because I was a dad that was in it, too. And, you know, I'm a human being, and I've got an ego, and this is a tough business, and we get bitter, and winning awards and stuff feels awfully nice. But I'm winning those awards and and getting a Grammy nomination at a time when my kid is still on the fence. Like, we don't know where we're going to land. We always had a good diagnosis, but we were in the middle of a firestorm. So How is she doing? Great. She just reached her five-year mark, which they call survivorship, which is five years from the remission that they're able to achieve about a month after diagnosis. The deal with leukemia is generally they can get it into, for kids, very different for adults, but generally they can get into remission within a month. If they can't, then it's a lot harder, the treatment. But it's not really in remission. That's the big secret about leukemia was that it used to be a death sentence because it would go into remission, meaning they can't find it anywhere, but it's in the blood, right? So all that needs to survive is one cell to restart the thing. What they learned over the years was that getting into remission meant it's probably still somewhere in the body and therefore we're going to treat it really aggressively for a couple of years in some cases three years and then you hope it never comes back and it didn't so she she reached five years from that mark of remission which is which is a big deal this summer cheers can we say her name on the podcast yeah it's cleo cheers to cleo that rocks does she involved in any music now is she suing suing you for all the uh the (laughs) rights to that album that when you want the almost won the grammy there's still no money to be made (laughs) (laughs) i do want to switch gears into your your grown-up stuff i was listening to uh what's the name of it i can't i need to put my glasses on again let it go yeah an older album the the older album okay so that's very that your voice is still the same there but the, the music itself is more electric guitar, right? That album was very electric. And, yeah. and it, it kind of reminds me of Uncle Tupelo, that, mm. that's, that sound. So things kind of changed for you later on as you're, you're becoming, it's more, more rootsy, more acoustic. Actually, that album was more the aberration. That album was produced by my friend Mike Donalo, and I, that's why I called it Let It Go. That was really a band album. Uh, it was more electric than anything I've ever done. I mean, I've always had electric guitars and stuff on my on my albums, but that was sort of a guitar-driven album. Yeah, I mean, I still think some of the best songs I ever wrote were on that album. I feel like I became a much better singer and performer over these 10 years performing for kids. I feel like I know who I am more now, and I know what to do with my voice and how to get my personality through, because that's all I have. I'm not... <laughs> What I have is personality in my voice. I don't have beauty. And I always knew that. But it was a question of how do I get that through? And all my favorite singers, songwriters, were those people. Prine, Tom Waits, Dylan, who could push a narrative through with their voice, could use their voice to tell a story. And I feel like I learned that a lot more over these 10 years because kids are a better audience. They're a tougher audience. Well, one of the reasons that I gravitated towards the kids' music, I think that things clicked, was I always had this strain of humor in my writing, and I often didn't know what to do with it. I was even embarrassed by it. Like, I didn't know what to do with those, like, funny instincts because I was trying to be uh, the next great singer-songwriter. 
but that's just who I am and that's my voice and who a lot of my favorite songwriters were and I think writing for kids helped me figure out how to use that in my words and also in the way I delivered words. We talked to Ruby Rose Fox just recently. Uh, she talked about how when she was younger, she used to think she needed to sing like Disney Princess up mm. high and then eventually she found her own voice. She's got that very low register, yeah. register voice. Yeah. Did you go through that? Did you kind of experiment it sounded like you kind of came to terms with the with the unique way you sing, and you didn't try to change it. You just I don't know came, came well, to terms. Well, I never sang as a kid. I wasn't a singer. I didn't sing in choruses growing up. My my parents because I my, love your voice. I mean, I don't, well, thanks. You know. Can't sing harmony. I never learned how to do any of that stuff. So when I came to this kind of music, it was all about writing. I wanted to be able to say the words that I wanted to say. And I had to figure out a way to use my voice to make it happen. And when I listen back to my very first recordings, my voice is not nearly as gravelly. So I definitely ended up moving in that direction. Because it also changes as you get older, too. I mean, It does, but I think I just, I mean, my speaking voice, as many, many people have pointed out over the years, is not nearly as gravelly as my singing voice. And I think you need to find something that you can do. Something that I think your voice is your like instrument. Your my voice? I think your voice is your instrument. Hmm. You said gravelly, but I mean, it's like, it's a storytelling voice that, I don't know, it's echoing kind of what it sounds like you came into over the years. You well, came into your voice, right. so to speak. I wanted to figure but, out how do I tell stories with my voice. And I, there's lots of things I wish I could do with my voice that I can't, but I, I know my limitations and, and I try to use it to the best effect. But the storytelling has always been, that's the purpose. And I feel like that has become focused for me more and more over time, that I realize that is the purpose. So when I sit down to sing a song in a studio now, I'm not thinking at all about hitting the notes. I'm thinking, I need to tell this story authentically. It needs to feel honest. How many kids' albums did you put out before you four. put out this? You put out four, four in a row? I put out four in a row before this. Before this, before the Alistair thing, yeah. Mook, the self-titled right. one. Was that culture shock for you, going back in the studio and doing ad- adult tunes? No, the shock was being able to write again. I mean, the reason I didn't put out an album, adult album for 10 years is I, I forgot how to write songs. I didn't know how to do it anymore. And I, I kept trying, and they felt dishonest. What, what was I going to write about? Things have changed so profoundly in my life. Like, I'm not going to write, go write some love song. I'm not like a 20 five-year-old kid like and also like my appreciation for other people's songs has grown immeasurably over time I think I'm much more humble than I was as a younger kid so I can listen to these songs that are out there and go listen to all these like the world doesn't need more more of this what (laughs) but then I finally like I found a way back in and the the way back in for me that felt authentic that I felt like okay here's something I can write about is all the stuff that I thought I had to take out the stuff that I was thought, well, that nobody wants to hear about that, so I have to sort of clean that out. Those are the, actually the things I have something to say about. The stuff about being a little bit older, about being middle-aged, about having kids. I should have realized it sooner, but I didn't. And, and when I did, I started writing songs again. I'm really proud of the songs. I'm really proud of the album. Yeah, it's hard getting it out into the world. I mean, things have changed so much, too, in 10 years, the way you put albums out. Nobody buys CDs anymore. I look back at the the reviews that I had on my early adult albums. I had all these reviews from the Boston Globe and the Herald and, uh, you know, a nice article in the Washington Post. I couldn't get a bite on this album. There's no, And I talked to other musicians. Nobody can. There's so little bandwidth for reviews anymore. You either need to be Taylor Swift or, like, some huge national thing. Or come on a podcast. Or <laughs> Yeah, this will, your career, you won't, you won't even recognize yourself after this podcast. <laughs> so thank you, Alistair. 
your music is great. Well, we wish you all the luck. Um, and I really think that these stuff going on with the schools is, is gold because if, listen, Marty Walsh just talked about last year about how there needs to be more arts in the schools. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just about throwing art in the schools and music and putting more money into music and art teachers, which, believe me, is important. It's not just about that. It's about integration. How do you layer in those types of programs that resonate with kids and adults? I mean, you could do that Woody Guthrie depression thing. I could see that being taught at a, a I college. Have, I have. Thanks, man. Yeah. I feel good about that yeah. work. I feel, honestly, right now, um, of all the different pieces of the, the stuff that I'm doing, it's the piece, especially given where we are as a country right now, it feels important to me to, to go in and talk to kids about that history, about the mm-hmm. fact that there have been times that people have changed things about our country on their own, and that going out and making your voice heard and, and using music or some other form of art as a tool are things that have worked and and they can work again. We're in a really bad place right now, but we've been in really bad places before. And kids learn this stuff in most schools in a very cursory way. Often it's taught in a sort of a box as this event that happened and was unconnected to history before it, like there was never a protest against the treatment of African Americans in our country before. And all of a sudden it started with Rosa Parks and it ended with Dr. King and then we moved on as a country. Putting kids back in that moment and talking about it and connecting it to this history that came before it's important. And one of the things, I'm sorry, I'm, go, I'm well, going on Well, some kids are going to only remember it because it. of, not just because of the song, but some kids are going to remember it because of the artistic layer. Well, I think being able to do it through song. song, if nothing else, at least gives a different avenue in, because that's something that they don't get in schools. To have somebody talk about history and sing at the same time is not something that kids are generally getting. I'll end by saying that one of the things that I started doing with kids, it started when John Lewis was back in the news. Congressman John Lewis, who got in this fight with Trump, and Trump said he was all talk and no action. This was the guy who was the leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who was beat down by police on the march from Selma to Montgomery, was back in the news. So for a very brief period of time, kids kind of knew that name because he was in the news. And I realized that no matter what I said about him, the most powerful thing I could actually do was show a picture of John Lewis getting beaten on that bridge in the 60s and then show a picture of him now and say to kids, this is 50 years. Even to our generation, it feels like ancient history, right? And those black and white photos make it feel even older. That happened a few years before we were born, or at least, I don't know, Chuck looks like he's been around for a while. Yeah, thank, thank <laughs> you. I'll take that as a compliment. Before I was born. So to be able to show a picture side by side, this is the guy getting beat in this picture, and this is him now. This is one half of a life we're talking about. This is not ancient history. That actually, among everything I do, that feels like this work is actually important. Yeah. Well said. What are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing the uh, first song I wrote for this album, this new album. That got me back to writing. It's called uh, Graveyard. Down in the old graveyard, I guess that's where I'll be. Someday, I don't know when, but it's got to catch up with me. You can save your money, save your soul. Eventually, you got to pay the toll. Down in the old graveyard, I guess that's where I'll be. Well, down in the 
old graveyard, I guess that's where I go. Someday, save my spot, they pick my plot right on my headstone. Husband, father, rest in peace. Let this bastard get some sleep. Down in the old graveyard, I guess that's where I go. Even Shakespeare had to shake this mortal coil Not even Prince could play his way out of the soil Six feet deep, bear me in my Sunday best and lay me down to sleep. Good night, Gracie. Good night, Moon. Good night, Irene. Lord, make some room down in the old graveyard, down about six feet deep. Well, well, down in the old graveyard. Guess that's where I'll be Someday Don't know when But it's got to catch up with me You can ring the bell Grab your coat Blow your horn That's all she wrote Down in the old graveyard I guess that's where I'll be Okay, this one's called Dream. Walk on down the street, follow your own feet, listen to your heartbeat and forget the things you know. Breathe on in the air The evening is your prayer Just let yourself be there Walking down the road This world is just a dream Floating down the stream The moment is the only thing you need Stop fighting against the current The things that you've determined they aren't, and they weren't, and they're never gonna be. Think about the fact that you're just a little speck, a fleck upon an acorn in an ocean's raging storm. In the scheme of time and space, you leave no lasting trace. The troubles that you face have no gravity or form. This world is just a dream Floating down a stream The moment is the only thing you need 
Stop fighting against the current The things that you determine They aren't and they weren't And they're never gonna be Find out more about Alistair at mookmusic.com. That's M-O-O-C-K. And please share this episode with your many friends. You can see a few videos we took of Alistair playing during our conversation at abovethebasement.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation is recorded at Beautiful Woods Hill Table Restaurant in West Concord, Massachusetts. Woods Hill Table is honored to have been awarded three stars as the most sustainable restaurant in Massachusetts by the Sustainable Restaurant Association. The food is organic and locally sourced, non-GMO, and is absolutely delicious. Chef Charlie Foster focuses on seasonal ingredients and their own grass-fed livestock raised on the farm at Woods Hill in Bath, New Hampshire. Go to woodshilltable.com for reservations.